0: Let's read Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which... We're about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in my sight, the sight of my God, I should say. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know about the hour, you will not know the hour at, you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But I, but you, have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord, saints. Let's please uh, pray. Gracious Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son and by the help of your Spirit. And we do ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Help us, Lord, to take heed to the warning uh, that was given to Sardis and also the threat, Lord, that uh, they were unaware of. Help us, Lord, to keep the gospel at the center of all that we do. Give us ears and eyes and hearts and minds, hands and feet, Lord, that are dedicated to you at all times and especially now as you speak to us. I decrease that you may increase, be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated, saints. Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters. We come on this Sabbath morning to the the fifth church that our Lord addresses in the vision given to the Apostle John. It is a church that is located in Sardis. Uh, this background, like the other backgrounds, is is vital and important. The Church of Sardis had a rich history. It was once upon a time the capital of the kingdom of Libya, and it was known for its wealth. As a matter of fact, the city was so wealthy that gold dust was said to be flowing in their river. It was also a city that was famous for having great power and also famous for losing great power. One of the empires that conquered Sardis was the Persian Empire, led by the great King Cyrus in the 6th century. In the Battle of Thimbra, Croesus, king of Lydia at the time, which was also a part of Sardis, made his one last final stand against Cyrus, the king of Persia, by taking the battle to Sardis. Believing that the city would be secure enough that it would not be overcome. Sardis was interesting. It was a kind of city below, and then an interesting uh, kind of elevated city. So there was city high and city low, and when threat and danger came, they would retreat to city high. Sardis was situated on top of of a mountain, really, and its walls uh, surrounded that mountain, and if you take go to Google and, and find out kind of what it looks like, you, you will see it, it seems like an impregnable type of city. There's just no way up there. The Persian city or Persian army would would attempt time after time to overtake the city because of its elevated location. It's just impossible to get there. Until a weakness was found. And it was found in, in, the, in the strangest of ways. A a Lydian soldier who would have been a soldier in Sardis was standing guard on the walls of the city and at one point or another he takes off his helmet and his helmet providentially of course falls to the ground and it falls to the ground from a great height the soldier knowing the terrain and knowing the location knew exactly how to get down and get back up with ease and so as he Makes his way down the mountain to retrieve his helmet. He's noticed by Persian spies who are just waiting for an opportunity to get into the city. They see with the ease with which he goes down and the ease with which he comes up and there's our way in. The city of Sardis was overtaken, invaded in the middle of the night like a thief. Through the weakness that was found in their walls. Years later, the Greek army also invaded the city. Greek army led by Alexander the Great also invaded the city and they used, because Alexander was such a, a student of history, used the same tactics that King Cyrus used in order to invade the city, uh, used the same entrance and also used the same time of day, which was in the middle of the night, to invade the city just like a thief. Among its features was what was known as a necropolis, uh, which is an extensive or elaborate burial place or cemetery. In Sardis, they had built such an elaborate necropolis that it had been known as a city of a thousand hills. You, you've driven by certain cemeteries. You drive down one by the old Mesa Moran, and you'll see that it, it's, it's filled with hills. Uh, but there are tombstones in the ground. During this time, tombstones were up. And so in the distance, it looked like a large city with rolling hills. But it was really just a cemetery. It was a city filled with dead people, if you will. It looked alive from a distance. As a matter of fact, even their skyline looked like an amazing city from a distance. But as you got closer, you realized it's just a cemetery. In Jerusalem, actually, you can go and see some of their cemeteries. And, and they are elaborate. And there's all of these uh, different tombs in this vast cemetery. And in the, in the distance, it would look like homes. But when you get closer and closer, it's just a cemetery. From the distance, things are not what they seem when you get closer. The diagnosis that our Lord gives to the church of Sardis is one that no church would ever want to receive. As you know well, these churches are meant to represent matters that are common to all churches for all times. And we ask, please Lord, let not what was said to Sardis ever be said among us. They have a reputation of being alive. But in reality, they are dead. With God's help this morning, we shall consider the church of Sardis and see what warnings we might take from this sleeping church. Let's consider this with three points this morning. Number one, the reputation of being alive, but truly being dead. The reputation of being alive, but truly being dead. This is verses 1 and 2. Our Lord draws from John's vision of the glorified Christ from chapter 1. To the church of Sardis he is, verse 1 the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here Christ adds to his initial introduction by proclaiming that, that he has the seven spirits of God. This does not mean, of course, that there are seven persons of the Godhead, or the Trinity, but you know the number seven is a number that is meant to represent completeness. And Christ has promised in John 14 to give the Holy Spirit to us as our helper and as our advocate. The seven stars are to speak of both the church and angels who are commissioned in some some mysterious way to give spiritual aid. The angels commissioned to give spiritual aid. The seven stars also representing the churches. Christ holds the, the fullness of the Spirit who He gives to the church. And He also holds the church and He holds the angels who have been given to the church in a mysterious way to support the church, He holds them all in His hands. Christ makes known to the church that the fullness of the person of the Holy Spirit has been sent forth by the Son. And we know this, don't we? The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit awakens and empowers the church. But there was a devastating problem in Sardis. In most of the addresses of our Lord, the churches are given a a type of commendation. There's this pattern of commendation, charge of sin, call to repent, and promise reward. In two of the seven churches, there is no charge of sin. Philadelphia, that we'll talk about next week. No charge of sin. In two of the seven churches, there is no commendation for good deeds. Sardis was one of those unfortunate churches wherein the Lord has nothing good to say about them. For Sardis, there is no commendation. Instead, our Lord goes directly to the charge of sin. Verse 1, he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, or, or you might say you have a reputation of being alive. But you were dead. Christ says to the church in Sardis that he knows all... Of their deeds. He says this to all the churches, doesn't he? I know your deeds. He knows his bride personally and intimately. There there are no hidden or locked doors with Christ. But once more, rather than commending the church for the variety of ways in which she rightly witnessed to Christ, she is rebuked. Rebuked for having a form of godliness, but lacking the true power within. She resembled the Pharisees, who Christ rebukes as being like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, full of dead men's bones, and everything unclean. The diagnosis from our Lord is that the church had a name, or, or had a reputation. How this reputation came, it may have been that other churches throughout the surrounding area, maybe the churches in, in Asia Minor, had at one point esteemed the church in Sardis as being a lively church, as being a vibrant church. And so their reputation preceded them. That once upon a time their light for Christ had burned bright, but now their light was on the verge of being extinguished. They were dead. There are four references references here to to, uh, name in verses 1 through 6. In verse 1, verse 5a, five 5b, five and in the original language, is also in verse 4, they are worthy of my name. There's this, there's this repetition of the word name. Sardis had a name. But as you, brothers and sisters, know, things are not always as they seem. I'm learning a little bit about photography from my wife, uh, whether I want to or not. She's kind of imposing her knowledge upon me. And one of the things that I'm learning about photography is the aspect that many of you know of called Photoshop. Making things that are not seem as though they are. So that one's name might receive some sort of praise. So it was with the church of Sardis. They worshiped Christ with their lips, but their hearts were miles away from him. They gave the appearance of righteousness. They gave the appearance of fervency for Christ. But inwardly, they were truly dead. Christ uses this hyperbolic language to describe the spiritual condition of the church, saying they are dead. They were not actually dead. It's hyperbolic because Christ calls the church to wake up. Strengthen what remains. That that means there was still a, a small portion of life within them. But it was about to die. Death was at the door of the church. The light of the church was on the verge of being snuffed out. And it's interesting that in these verses, there's no mention of persecution, is there? There's no mention of false teaching. There's no mention of external threats, per se. Dennis Johnson in this commentary says, The letter pinpoints no specific cause of sleep or death. Or sleep unto death. He says, no Nicolaitans were luring Christ's servants in, in, in Sardis to be immoral or idolatrous. Uh, no Balam like prophet or Jezebel-like prophetess misled the unwary. Although Sardis is known to have a strong Jewish community and vibrant paganism, the letter mentions no external sources of intimidation. No social rejection, no persecution, such as other churches encountered from Satan's throne or from Satan's synagogues. And nevertheless, the church was spiritually unconscious. Now, it could very well be that there is no mention of these former things, but yet all of these things could have played a part in their lethargic state. They they may not have been mentioned in the text, but they still may have been there. Whatever the case, we must be very careful not to insert too many assumptions. I, I, I read a number of different things this week on this, this church and listened to a number of different things. It's amazing how many people insert their own ideas of what's actually going on here. Christ pinpoints at least one of the problems. Just as in the uh, city in general uh, was living off of a, a name that no longer exists, a fame that no longer exists, so the attitude also infected the church. The city had this history of believing that it could not be toppled, that it could not be overcome until it was. Not once, but twice. And in the same exact way. The city of Sardis was a, a shell of its former self. It had a history of being wealthy, a history of being strong, and the same mentality seems to have crept into the church. The city seems to have infected the church rather than the church infecting the city. This could have been a second generation church. Uh, they could, these could be the children of those who were initially the ones who started the church there in Sardis. Much like Ephesus, they gained respect for their former deeds. But whatever deeds of faith that were displayed in the past were nothing but a distant memory now. Dear saints, we cannot survive off of our deeds from the past. Uh, We cannot say, I I prayed once, I no longer need to pray anymore. I I heard the gospel once, I I need not hear it anymore. Or I shared the gospel once, I need not share it anymore. I witnessed once, I, I no longer need to be a witness. We cannot depend upon even reputations to carry us into the kingdom of God. Just like the church of Ephesus with all of its uh, wonderful apostolic teachers who uh, may have taken a certain pride by the fact that they sat under such amazing teachings. I I go to the church in Ephesus. Now there's a certain kind of badge of honor that goes along with that, isn't it? Well, you sit sit under great teaching, don't you? The church of Sardis may have carried some kind of badge of honor for the church that, that was once known for vitality. But it was not known for vitality anymore. The the life signs were were fading. This address from Christ to the church of Sardis and to the church of all time, it raises an important question, doesn't it? How do lively churches die? How do do vibrant churches, churches that are are known to to be full of life, how do they die? And, And here's another assumption that we need to be careful of. What is life? What does it mean to to be alive in a church? What does it mean to, to be a church that is lively? Before you fit in all of your and my traditions of what we think liveliness means, I'm certain there are a variety of answers. But it's not just one thing always, is it? It's usually a number of things. Certainly, one of the ways the Church of Sardis became... Dead was, is mentioned for us in verse four because Christ says that there are still some there who have not soiled. That's an important word. They have not soiled their garments. You should know what that means. I don't need to fill in the blank. Soiled their garments. Elsewhere in Revelation, when the word stained or soiled is used, it's, it's used in reference to the pollution or compromise of idolatry. Christ says that there are still some in the church who have not stained themselves with idolatry, which means that for the majority of the church, they were staining or soiling themselves by compromising in idolatrous behavior. They had in some kind of way kept a low profile in the context of the pagan, pagan culture. In the context of everyday living, they had somehow, some way, compromised and acquiesced to pagan idolatry. This then begins to do what? It begins to hurt the witness of the church. For those of you who may not know this, by the time I was at least 19 or 21, I'm sorry, 20 or 21, I began to join my father in prison ministry. I would follow him all over California and, As him and my mom had been doing for years, going into the church, into the church in the prisons, and as I began to begin to know some of the men, one of the things that stood out to me that they would say is that when you are a Christian, you must be a Christian all the time, because here there are people who are watching, and they are watching every single one of your moves to find out if you are just playing church. Or if you are truly a Christian, and if you're just playing church, then you will be exposed, and they will not allow you to get away with some of the things that you are not allowed to get away with in church, in the, in the prison, unless you are a Christian. The Church of Sardis had those who were in the city who were playing Christian, but were not really Christian, and it began to hurt their witness in Sardis, their light for witness began to grow dim because they were playing church. They weren't truly following Christ. Think about it, brothers and sisters. This kills one aspect that, that kills the church. When we compromise, when we walk in step with the world, when we embrace the world's lifestyles, the church will suffer. Its witness will suffer. The church will die. How else does the church die? Think about that. If, if As you're hearing this question, What goes on in your mind? How does a church die? A church dies when? Fill in the blank. Let me ask, in order to answer this question, what's the purpose of the church? In this world, what's the purpose of the church? Someone might immediately say, to be a witness, yes. But before being a witness, to advance the kingdom. Being a witness is a part of this, right? We advance the kingdom as we witness. But we are advancing the kingdom of Christ. You will remember the words from the first chapter of Revelation. Revelation one five. Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Verse 6. Has made us to be a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. Verse 9. I, John, your fellow brother and partaker in the tribulation and in the kingdom. Kingdom language. Uh, This advancing of the kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of Christ Now. The kingdom has been inaugurated now by Christ. We are called then to advance his kingdom, to to spread his kingdom, to invite people into his kingdom. Dear royal ones, since you are kings, how do we advance the kingdom of Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ tells us, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. 18. It's important to start in verse 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, him. So what do we do with the kingdom or the authority that's been given to the king? The king gives us the authority and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teach, teaching them now the other part, to obey all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As you advance the kingdom, Christ is with us. How do we advance the kingdom? Through our gospel proclamation and witness. We advance the kingdom through the gospel proclamation and witness. We preach the gospel in order, which is the ordained means of grace by which sinners are converted, turn to faith in Christ alone, and are saved. Our witnessing for Christ is a vital part, portion, of being in Christ. If you are in Christ, you witness for Christ. We only need survey the seven churches to see the value that Christ puts on upon those who are faithful witnesses for Christ and for the advancing of His kingdom. The church of Ephesus, boldly witnesses for Christ, but they lack love. Smyrna, witness for Christ, had an unrelenting faithfulness to Christ in spite of persecution. Pergamum was not deterred of their witness for Christ even when their brother and our brother Antipas was killed for his faithful witness. These are just a few examples of what should be evident in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, methods. Methods of how we witness to Christ, they're debatable. How will we witness to Christ? Collectively? Individually? uh, Do we have uh, collective outreaches? Do we, in our day-to-day lives, witness for Christ? All of those things can be debated, regardless the church is called to be a witness. And while there are a variety of ways that can be effectively uh, that can be effective for a witness for Christ, one of the most common ways that you and I can be, be mindful of, and you've heard this a thousand times to be a witness for Christ is found in the everyday regular rhythm of your lives. When you're at work, when you're at school, the stores that you most often frequent. The gyms that you go to, the the next-door neighbor that you see periodically, the mailman. All of these moments and interactions have been providentially provided by our Lord as opportunities for you to be a witness for Christ. If we're honest, many of us are terrified of walking up to a complete stranger and saying, I'd like to share with you the gospel. Many of us are, are terrified of that, aren't we? Many of us feel more comfortable with family. We feel more comfortable with friends or schoolmates, co-workers that we meet with on a regular basis. We're comfortable with them. Those opportunities, they arise. We're also praying for them. We're praying for those people that are most close to your lives. Brothers and sisters, those are your opportunities to advance the kingdom. Those are your opportunities to be a light But, that is not only the only necessary ingredient in advancing the kingdom. In order for a church to be alive, we all must be witnessing. In in order for a church to be alive, you must be encouraged by those who are preaching to go out and to be a witness for Christ. To be uncompromising. This is our responsibility from here. Be a witness. Share the gospel. Be uncompromising. Hold fast to Christ. Do not compromise. We said this, right? The advancement of the kingdom is not just, though, when we preach the gospel from here. This is a good thing. It, it, and it's also not just when we preach the gospel out there. That's not the only way in which the, the gospel of the kingdom is advanced. The kingdom is also advanced when we maintain and establish churches where the gospel is preached. So we not only go into the, the world of unbelievers and make, make ourselves, by the help of God, witnesses... Who also share the gospel with unbelievers, that's not the only aspect of advancing the kingdom. The kingdom is also advanced when we establish and maintain churches by the continual preaching of the gospel. Preaching of the gospel of the unbelievers, one aspect. And then the Lord calls them to, calls the converted sinner to be taught all the things that Christ has commanded. In what context? do we learn all of the things that Christ has commanded in the local church as we advance the kingdom in order for the kingdom to to be advanced we must call the converted sinners to become recognized baptized members of a local church and this is a part of advancing the kingdom they both go together and what do recognized members who are united to the church hear on a regular basis what should we hear on a regular basis. We, when we gather for the worship of Christ, we should hear the faithful preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, it should be at the center of all that we do. We hear the triune glory of our God. Of the glory of our triune God, I should say uh, That the love of the Father was so great that he sent his Son to save sinners. His only begotten Son. The indwelling of the Father, Son, and Spirit who presently is sanctifying us from sin and and, uh, bringing us into a Christ-likeness, conforming us into Christ-likeness so that we might present it to Christ without spot or wrinkle. We should be hearing these things on a regular basis. We should hear of the sinfulness of sin and the punishment of hell. The separation from God to those who will not repent. We should hear the words of God from Genesis to Revelation. We should hear the words of God rightly divided and rightly expounded. And when we do, we hear the word of Christ. And we preach Christ, don't we? We preach Christ and Him crucified, don't we? The church should be led by shepherds who are watchful for those who might come in as wolves in sheep's clothing. The shepherd should be one who serves as a guide to the gates of the celestial city. And the church should be ruled by members who are also watchful. Members who are noted by prayer, faith, hope, and love. From this pulpit, the gospel should be preached to those who are sitting in the pews. And for those who are sitting in the pews, the gospel is taken to the nations. So that the kingdom of God may be advanced. And when this does not happen, the church dies. That's All of that was to say, and when those things are not happening, when they're not present, the church dies. When the gospel is being preached here, and outside of here, there are people who are just wanting to escape, get out of the room so that they can not hear the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the church will die. When we leave here, when we come to hear the word of God, and we're not receiving it by faith, when we are distracted by other things, uh, when we come in and we're giving a form of I'm present but I'm not here, then it's just form and no faith. I'm present but I'm going to take a quick nap. I'm present but I'm going to be distracted by other things. Brothers and sisters, it's form and not faith. You might as well not be here. Because you're only performing for men. And God says, I see, I see, they don't see, I see. You, 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 you're striving for a reputation among men, but that reputation will not last and it'll do you no good. So much more could be said, but it appears that something like what we have just described, Exactly, maybe not, but something like what we have just described stopped happening in Sardis. And it happened over a period of time. The call from Christ, the one who is a merciful shepherd, but one who will not spare the rod is this, number two, the wake-up call. The wake-up call. This is verses four, uh, 2 through 4. The church that slumbered, to them Christ, His call is very simple. Wake up. To the church that slumbered, the call from Christ is very, very simple. Wake up. Where were they living? Sardis. Why does this wake up call, it's the very simple phrase, why does wake up, why should it, why should it resonate not only with us, but also with them so powerfully? He knows them. He knows their history. Twice, not once, twice, the city has been overtaken when, in the middle of the night, when they were not watchful, When they were not alert, in the middle of the night, enemies crept in like a thief and overtook their city. Christ utilizes this city's history, one that they would have known, in order to illustrate their spiritual condition and the manner of which judgment was about to come to them. What about you this morning? You're not in Sardis. You're not from Sardis. Does this still apply to you? Well, what is your spiritual condition this morning? Does the call from Christ to wake up, does it penetrate your soul? Uh, not just for this sermon. I hope that you're alert and that you oh, I better wake up during this sermon because the whole, he's been saying over and over again, wake up. So at least for this sermon, I better wake up. What about your soul? Is your soul alerted? Are you sleeping or are you wide awake spiritually? It's to be watchful, it is. In the midst of a no doubt pagan culture, listen, then and now. It wasn't just Sardis that was living in pagan idolatry. It's then and now. All churches for all times. There can be the temptation to become lethargic. The call is simply wake up. This call to wake up, it was not like the call that Christ gave to Lazarus. Don't make those connections. This call is like the call that Christ gave to his disciples who kept falling asleep when he was calling them to be watchful. It was like the call that Christ gave to his disciples when he said, this is the hour that I've been telling you about for the past three and a half years. All of what I've been saying has been building up to this moment. Wake up! It's, it's happening now. You imagine, three and a half years, Christ has been saying, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and then I'll be raised. And Christ says, pray. Because it's about to happen now. It's All of the things that I've been saying are taking place now. And they keep falling asleep. And keep falling asleep. Do you know that there will be a moment when we least expect when Christ will arrive? And Christ is saying to his church, before it's too late, you won't be able to wake up after he's come. It will be too late. Wake up. Everything that has been, that has been said and that, that we have been saying have all been leading to this moment. Wake up. You can't afford to be asleep right now. It's a call to alertness. It's a call to watchfulness. Sardis was on the verge of death in the terms of the light of their city. Their light was going out. They were called to be a witness, but it was it was faintly burning. Recall, uh, Christ calls them to recover. Wake up and recover. Wake up and recover. Wake up and re- take hold of again the things that you have received and the things that you have heard. What, what would be the things that they had received at first and the things that they had heard at first? What, what would it be? What did you first hear and receive? The Gospel. Wake up. Go back to the Gospel. Wake up. Retrieve the gospel. Retrieve the message of Christ. The message that, that, that brought them life. The the message that could bring pagans life. Wake up to the gospel. Recover the gospel. We can assume that they just weren't hearing it anymore. It's an assumption, yes. I think it's a safe one, though. Safer than all the other stuff I, I heard assumed about the church. A, a safe one, at least. And it could be assumed, if we're... Making all of these presumptions that the gospel wasn't being preached here. And when the gospel is not preached here, it will, it will infect in a negative way those out there. When you, young person, old person, middle-aged person, whatever age you may be, when you are not regularly hearing the gospel, it will cause, for you at least, a false perception of what's important, what really matters. The gospel is not something that you graduate from, brothers and sisters, and move on from. The gospel is not something that that you, uh, that is for, for elementary kids, and then you are now grown, so you don't need that anymore. The whole Christian life is to be lived in light of the gospel. It's it's to be lived. All that we are is to be lived in light of what we have believed. And the call from Christ is to recover it. Recover that which has been abandoned. Dear saints, let us not take our right standing before God for granted. We are far too often comfortable and we lose our zeal for witness we lose our zeal for hearing the gospel. I've said it before. Tell me again, pastor, is he still is it, is, it, is it still good news? Has he still risen from the dead? Is he still alive forevermore? Don't get tired of hearing that. Don't lose your zeal for God's word both in public preaching and in private devotion. It's a blessing when when I go to my mother's house in the morning sometimes and she's not one that watches TV, but you'll see most normally when she's gone, not home, there's the Word of God on the table where I know she has her morning coffee. There's a book next to it, and I can see the little areas where she's highlighted and where she's underlined. Unless she kind of does it so that she knows I'm going to see when I get to This here. <laughs> walking with the Lord for over 40 years, We cannot abandon the Word of God. We cannot abandon our time of prayer. We cannot be so distracted by the world that is trying to just simply get your attention, to take your eyes off of Christ. We must be advancing in godliness. Advance the Gospel, and as you're advancing the Gospel, you should be advancing in godliness advance your witness for Christ and as you are advancing your witness for Christ you should be advancing in godliness they should be saying about you and Lord willing you should be saying about yourself i'm a much godlier man or woman than I, I today than i was yesterday and the day before advance in faith working out our, our salvation with fear and trembling but never assume the faith-shaped life is merely confessed with lips, but not, does not penetrate hearts and souls and transform every fiber of our being. It should. It must, it necessarily must. Second Peter 1:5, for this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply more excellence, more excellence, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, and godliness, brotherly kindness. All of these qualities are yours and increasing, he says. If all of these qualities are yours and increasing, they do not make you useless, unproductive, parentheses, dead, lethargic, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make every effort, another, another version may say NIV probably, for this reason, because of your election, being called in Christ, for this reason... Make every effort to add to your faith. For this reason, because you are in Christ, make every single effort to add to your faith, to advance in your faith. Godliness, excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, brotherly kindness, you should see these things advancing, increasing, not decreasing in your life. You will never hear from this pulpit At least as long as me and Pastor Isaiah are alive. May it never be that your holiness is of no importance. That self-control is of no importance. Dear saints, are you advancing or increasing in godliness? If not, wake up. Strengthen what remains. It may be small, but it's still present, and it is what Christ is doing, isn't He? It's small; it's a faintly burning light, but Christ is gently fanning it. It's forceful, but the fact that He's even giving the warning also speaks of His gentleness. It may say it may come off as wow, that's that's uh that's aggressive, that's rough to say these things that He's saying. But he's still giving a warning. He could simply just come and eliminate them, but instead he gives them a fair warning: "You better wake up. If you don't, judgment is coming." It's merciful. It's the rod and the staff. Christ describes their works as incomplete works. They abandon the left work, the first works, almost as if. and now we have nothing else to do. They abandon the first works as if I've already completed the course. There's no more need for running or advancing. Advance where? I'm here. Imagine a man like the Apostle Paul saying, I have not, I have not yet attained it. I have not yet achieved it. So what do you do, Paul? I advance. I press on. Toward the mark, I press on toward the goal. The difficult as it may be. The difficulty with every step, with every with every motion of your arms, with every lifting of your legs, as we said last week, but it's not dependent on your power alone. Wake up. Our deeds are still lacking. And there is still yet more to do. More godliness to be conformed to. Wake up. Oh, for the person who believes in any kind of way, shape, or form, that they have somehow attained some kind of spiritual apex or believes what others say about you. Oh, he is such, she she is such a godly. Uh, You should say about if you only knew. If you only knew. None of us, especially me, have attained any apex, have reached any summit. And just when we think we have, oh, wow. we get to the top and, oh, there is still much more, much more to go. The majority, and this is important, the majority of the church in Sardis kept the appearance of vibrant faith, but it was a farce. In the gathering of the saints, it's easy to give off the appearance of vitality. But Christ sees what goes on behind the locked doors. Let us strive not only for a favorable favorable reputation with men, but a favorable reputation with God. What were the incomplete deeds that were in Sardis? We don't know. But at least one of them was an unfaithful witness to Christ. And the incomplete deeds, they echo the command that Christ gives to the church of Ephesus. Do the deeds you did at first. Return to your first love. Go back. If the assumption is correct, then this lack of, of faithful witness to the unbelieving world with the gospel were the incomplete deeds that the Lord addresses. Wake up. And they would be judged for not being the light bearers that they were called to be. Saints, aren't you so thankful for the wake-up calls from the Lord? Aren't you so thankful for the moments in which Christ calls you and I to just wake up? I remember uh, staying in a hotel with my dad once upon a time, and I didn't know it, but he had uh, requested a 6 o'clock a.m. wake-up call. I don't know if you've ever been in a hotel when they give you a wake-up call, but it it feels like there's an earthquake going on, or the the place is on fire, there's a light that, that blinks brightly in the room and the, the phone rings and you you wake up out of nowhere. What's going on? What's going on? Sir, this is your wake-up call that you requested? <laughs> oh. Thank you. <laughs> not fun. Not enjoyable. But you're thankful when it happens because at least you and I myself would have most definitely probably slept until noon and missed the very thing that we were getting the hotel for whether it comes to the preaching of the word on the Lord's day whether it comes to a passage of scripture that you are reading in your own time of devotion and maybe it's an interaction that you have throughout your week that reinvigorates your zeal to increase in godliness, whatever the case, the Lord is acting in tender ways. Forceful ways, but tender ways. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And if you've ever seen a a wick that's not sparked with flame, but there's just heat on it, just enough that if it's fanned, it will burn once again it is what our merciful savior is doing for us at least for the church of sardis he cares for his own the church meeting in sardis would have heard this message it would have been painful for them to hear because no discipline is enjoyable at the time but it's for the purpose of preserving us you you're almost gone and because you are greatly loved, He is gently pulling you back. Mm. Uh, uh, gently, forcefully, and then gently, forcefully, and then gently, pulling us back. Yeah. They would have been confessed it. They would have been forced in that church to confess their own deadness. To, to uh, confess their own complacency. To confess their own sense of achievement. As false as it was. And you know that Christ was not calling them to think about it. He was not saying, think about what I'm saying. It was a command. Wake up. Wake up. Return to the things that you have abandoned. And and we need not go to a place of serenity in order to to obey the command. We need not need the right setting. Go to a a silent river or go to a mountain peak or, or go to some place of solace so we can finally think about, what has God said to me? Just wake up. You don't need the perfect setting and the perfect surrounding. You're hearing Christ's word. Obey it. And when the word comes, you will either be a hearer or you will be a doer of his word. Just like the city of Sardis believed that they were impregnable, that it could not be overtaken until it was overtaken in the deadness of night. Christ calls the sleepy majority, because there's a minority, Calls the sleepy majority to rise from their comatose. Their comatose of comfort and ease. Or he too would come like a thief in the night. In judgment. Not the final judgment. But Christ would come in a unique way. To take the light away from that church in Sardis. For those who were delinquent in doctrine and in life. Christ will come and judge you. But there is a promise, isn't there? And thanks be to God for the promise that Christ gives for those who overcome. Last and finally, those the promise for those who who overcome. This is verses 4 through 6. In every church, brothers and sisters, and dare I say, even in this small group, in every church there are true believers and false believers. In every church. We try our best only to receive those who, as far as we can tell, are true confessors of Christ. In larger churches, it's, it's even more true that there are a larger majority or a larger portion of those who are not believers versus those who are believers. In a smaller church, it's a little harder to tell. I think the gate is higher uh The barriers are are more in a smaller church than in a bigger church in this church Sardis we don 't know the size we, there are some who when, when I was reading and listening to some of those sermons assumed the church of sardis was was thousands that's a, that's a kind of lofty assumption we don 't know how many were in the church, but however many were there, there is a small minority who had not compromised their faith in Christ. Christ always has a remnant. Christ always has those who are truly His. Christ always has those who are truly faithful to Him. Most likely, these faithful ones were converted in Sardis through the hearing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had held fast to the faith that had been passed down to them by the apostles. And they had also persevered in their toiling for the sake of Christ. And their perseverance did not go unnoticed. They have not been soiled. For those who hold fast to Christ, all of you, you're not perfect. We know that. They're not earning salvation. We know that. But rather, they are acknowledged as being identified with Christ by Christ. Christ. It's one thing to have a city recognize you as, oh, that's a Christian. He identifies with Christ sometimes. Versus Christ coming to you and saying, you identify with me. And you are faithful in your witness. The one who sees all. The one who knows all. The people lived as though they should. Citizens of the kingdom of God. They would not be stained by the kingdom of this world because they did not belong to the kingdom of this world. They were royal ones. The kingdom of God is now. It's not sometime in the distant future. It's here and now. We have a king. We live according to His law. We've been called by our King to advance His kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel, planting churches, building churches, establishing healthy churches, churches as we advance in godliness but continue to preach the gospel. You are citizens now of the kingdom. And if you live in such a way, you will be counted worthy to walk with Christ you ever walked with someone that maybe you respected and admired? And there was a sense of, of pride almost. I'm walking with this person. This person is walking with me. I hope that, that you feel that way about your spouses. I'm walking with her. He is walking with me. Yeah? In glory, we will walk with Him. When you walk with someone, they recognize you. They, they, they see you as, yes, you are with me, and, and you are allowed to walk with me. Sometimes you'll see celebrities who are walking and people will want to walk by them. If, if the celebrity looked back and see who it was, I don't know that person. But Christ will look at each and every one of you and say, I know Him. I know her. Just walk with me. Christ is worthy of glory because he has overcome all of our enemies, all his enemies. He is our king who conquers. And we are made worthy to walk with him. Because he has overcome and because in him we also overcome. There's a type of abiding in Christ that we must ask God by His Spirit to help us with. We're not called to sit back and do nothing, saints. We're not called to let go and let God. We have a responsibility to obey. We have a responsibility to abide. We have a responsibility to advance and to progress. And if we do, not works righteousness, not in the least... obedience and faith though if we do we shall be worthy of walking with Christ and we shall be glorified with Him we shall be advanced in that time fully and completely when we are glorified no more stain of sin upon us the threat of sin will be be eternally removed we shall be eternally pure dressed in white the, the phrase is and it's meant to denote pure purity There's also a second promise to the overcomer that his name will not be erased from the book of life. The phrase book of life is used five times elsewhere in the letter of Revelation and it's meant to point to salvific destiny. The salvific destiny of believers who have been determined before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. It's also meant to contrast another book. A book that is meant to keep record of unbelievers and their sin. And they will be judged on that judgment day on the basis of their lack of faith in Christ and their sins that they have committed in unbelief. What book are you in? For the one who overcomes, their names will not be erased from the book of life. Christ has made his people a kingdom of kings and priests and he shall not lose one of them. This does not mean that your names could be erased from the book of life. Nor does it mean that you could lose your salvation. This this phrase is meant to be taken in purely positive terms, not negative terms. It should be understood in the positive that like this, it is impossible for your names to be erased from the book of life. For they have always been there. And it is impossible for them to be removed. It also is a call back, an echo to Exodus chapter 32. Some of you might remember that. The account when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. After receiving the law of God. Only to find Israel celebrating around a golden calf. God has revealed his law. The people have sworn on oath. An oath of covenant ratification. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. And then Moses comes down, returns to find the people singing and dancing around a golden idol. Their behavior risks making Israel a laughing stock among the nations. Their witness to the Gentiles around this compromising idolatry was was threatened. They could not effectively witness to the unbeliever. Because they could not bear witness to their own covenant faithfulness. Because of their sin. And because of idolatry. The Lord orders some 3,000 people to be cut down by the sword. In the office of mediator. Moses pleads on behalf of the people. Pleads on behalf of the people to the Lord. Moses says... What a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. And if not, he says, then blot me out of the book you have written. The book that Moses spoke of was the book of the census. It was the census in which the twelve tribes of Israel and their respective inheritance were recorded. It's said to be God's book. Because of Israel's great sin against God, those who participated in that worship of the pagan calf and idolatry, they were erased and eliminated from that book. They would not receive the inheritance promise of inheritance. Indeed, the Lord declares about them, whoever, to sin, whoever sins against me, I will plot out of my book. So these individuals and their children were thereby removed from the covenant and they would no longer receive its blessings. Notice the difference between Moses the mediator and the mediation of Christ who intercedes for his people. In Moses' mediation you could be removed from God's book. In Christ's mediation there is no way you can be removed from his book. The book of life contains the names of all of the elect. Those who God has elected to save in in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have been given faith to believe. But like Israel in the desert, the professing Christian who made peace with paganism and joins idolatrous behavior becomes an ineffective witness for Christ just as Israel had done in Sinai. But for those who stand fast, for those who hold fast to the gospel that they have received and heard. The gospel of Christ for those who have not soiled their robes. The gospel of Christ for those who have not followed the idolatrous behavior of the pagans. The gospel of Christ who are promised and will be given the reward. Nothing shall prevent them from possessing the guarantee of their inheritance and from their names being removed from the book of life. It shall never be so. A dear sister asked me once, why is it that our names will never be removed from the book of life? Response, because their names are written in the blood. The blood of Christ. For these, their names will be acknowledged not before men, before God. Sardis had a reputation before men. Christ says, for those who are in Him, they will be given a reputation before God. Christ says, everyone who confesses Me before men, I will confess before My Father who is in heaven. They may not have a name among men, but they have a name among God. They may not be known among men, but they are known before God. A few weeks ago, we mentioned... Antipas, the faithful witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the witness who was killed in Pergamum, Antipas, who as far as we know never preached a sermon, never wrote a book, never gained an advanced degree from a prestigious school, was never invited to larger conferences, but was known and honored by Christ throughout all the years of the church as his faithful witness. It was said to me before by a man who does have all of those accolades aforementioned. We will be surprised who the Lord honors when rewards are given in heaven. It may not be those who we most often honor here on earth. It could very well be, he said, that the Lord honors that stay-at-home mother. when whatever number of children she has, when she teaches them to love the Lord and to obey Him, those may be the ones that God highly honors in His kingdom. You may never preach a sermon, dear one. It may never be on sermon audio. It may never be a name that people Google to find you and what you might say. People may never know your name. It doesn't matter. What matters is that He knows your name. You may feel like you go through life and even church life unnoticed and that your deeds amount to nothing, that that you are just here and that you're not being useful. Stop that. Your name is known by Christ. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters you may think that there are times when you are witnessing to your children and your grandchildren or maybe even your wives or husband and that it doesn't matter. Stop that. It does matter. Christ sees it. Christ will honor you. When you are at work and you would rather avoid that conversation, but you know that, that you are called to be a light and to be a faithful witness. And even though it may seem like no one cares, no one sees. Christ sees. It matters. And you're at home in your own devotion, reading your word and praying, and thinking, is this even amounting to anything? Does this even matter? It matters. Christ sees it. The world may never know your name, but Christ does. And that's the only person that matters. May it never be said of us, from the Lord, depart from me. I never knew you. Christ says of them on the day of judgment, if you hold fast, if you do not soil yourselves, then I will confess you before my Father and all of His angels. And if you can imagine that that judgment seat when we are judged before God, and we will be unto righteousness, Christ will acknowledge you before His Father. Oh, to have Christ say your name, and then to give you a new name. How precious is it, and will it be, For us to confess Christ, yes, but for Christ to confess us as his own. He knows your name. And he has promised that he will not deny us before the Father or his angels. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.